ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And um, if you weren't here last week, um, last week Pastor Jay preached on the, the crucifixion. And as we look at chapter 28, the resurrection, I really want us to try to enter into the disciples' shoes for a little bit and try to feel what they were experiencing um, Saturday and into Sunday morning. Um, they weren't expecting the resurrection. On, on Saturday and on Sunday morning, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they, they saw before them a bleak and dark and despairing situation. Um, as his followers woke up on Sunday morning, they were still grappling with understanding that, that Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, as they had thought, and now maybe they're having their doubts because Messiahs don't get crucified, Saviors don't get killed, they, they save people, they conquer, they rule, they, they defeat. Um, and he was handed over to the Romans and crucified. Was he who he said he was? They're, they're grappling with this. They're struggling with this. This isn't what they expected. And on that fateful night leading up to his arrest, and, and try to put yourself in these shoes here, um, up to Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Judas, one of their closest companions, somebody that they had traveled with, somebody that they had been close to, he had betrayed them for money. Um, and then while Jesus was praying in anguish the night before, they fell asleep. Um, when, the, when the soldiers came, ten of them ran away. One of them stood before the, and before the soldiers, chopped off an ear, and then got rebuked, and Jesus healed the ear, and then he ran away. And then he, when he had an opportunity to identify himself with Christ three times, he said, I don't even know the guy. And so now he's been killed. He's been crucified. All your hopes, all your faith were in him. You really believed he was who he said he was, but being crucified wasn't part of how you understood the Messiah and his mission to go. And now he's been crucified, he's been killed. You ran away, you denied him, you hid. How are you processing that? And we're not told exactly what the disciples were thinking about through the day on Saturday and Sunday morning. But they were undoubtedly the darkest, most confusing, and bleakest hours of their lives. Jesus, the king, the Messiah, the one who had all their hopes on was dead. So as we approach today's text, try to try to put yourself in the shoes of, of Jesus' followers. You really had believed that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Christ. He was the Son of the living God. But how could the Christ, how could the Son of God, how could the Savior of the world be mocked, spit on, cruelly beaten, and unjustly executed? What do you do now? Or even at that point? What are we supposed to do? Maybe they're not even at that point. They're just in this state of confusion, of, of not understanding what's next. So, but into this dark and hopeless setting, the light will burst forth and overcome the darkness. I'm going to read all of chapter 28. Um, and normally when I read, I just straight read it. But I'm going to read it with commentary because I'm really trying to enter us into this, this story here. So I want you to try to identify with the characters in the story. So follow along in your Bibles. I'll pause here and there. Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So this is Sunday morning. Sabbath is Saturday. Jesus was crucified on Friday night. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So try to put yourself in the, the state of these women. They're not coming to the tomb expecting to find it empty. They're coming to the tomb. These are the people who stayed. Remember the disciples, with the exception of John, they all ran. The, the women watched Jesus be crucified. 
So they, they sat, they watched him, they watched him die, they watched him give up his spirit, they watched all these things that happened, and they're coming on Sunday morning, um, one of the other Gospels tells us, hoping that the, the soldiers might help them roll away the stone, they want to show honor and reverence to Jesus' body. That's why they're coming. They're not coming expecting it to be empty, they're not coming expecting some miracle to happen, they're coming to honor the body of their Lord and to show, show, show him reverence as, as much as they can. So they're just coming to take care of his body. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you in Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that. Think about that for a second. Fear and great joy. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. You're coming to, to honor the body of your Lord and Savior. There's an angel. There's an earthquake. The guards are falling down like they're dead. This is kind of scary. They're saying he rose from the dead. Wait wait a second. Wait, people don't rise from the dead. Dead people stay dead. That's kind of the normal experience. So he's alive? What's going on here? There's fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. It's actually a pretty bland, um, bland thing to say. It's, hi, what? <laughs> He's alive. Hi. Um, and they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. I, I actually really love that. If you think about the disciples who just um, denied Jesus, they fled, they fell asleep, and Jesus tells them, tell my brothers. Tell my brothers. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a hint of restoration here and of forgiveness here for, for their failures. Tell my brothers that they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. Now, enter in just for a second. And normally, we like to enter into the shoes of the good guys here. But enter into a second that you're one of the chief priests and you orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. And the reason you have guards there is because you're afraid that the disciples will come steal the body and make some kind of big deal out of it. But then the guards come and they say, hey, so there's this earthquake and this angel, and I don't know what really happened. And so now you're conferring amongst you. What do you, what do you say? What, should, what do you do? Now, obviously, we know what you should do. You should repent and say, okay, he really was who he said he was. But they're doubling down, right? They want to keep their power. They want to keep the narrative. They're, they're not going to change what they've already said. So they double down. They go back to what they originally had had spread as, as their fear. So they assembled with the elders and they took counsel and they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. Um, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. You see the, the kind of contrasting, tell people he's risen from the dead, tell people the disciples stole the body. There's almost like two um, opposing great commissions here. One's a pretty lame commission, but two, two opposing commissions. Um, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of, out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now you're, you're the disciples meeting Jesus. What are you thinking and feeling? Remember going back to that fateful night, 
You fled, you ran away when the, the soldiers came. You didn't watch the crucifixion, most of you didn't. Um, if you're Peter, you denied knowing him three times. Um, you, saw, you, you, you saw a lot of these things happen. What are you thinking? And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And I'll talk about the doubted here in a little bit. But I think actually a better way to understand the word doubted here is, is they, they hesitated. They hesitated. They weren't quite confident. I don't think it's like they doubted that Jesus really rose from the dead. I think it has to do with more confusion or hesitation. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray before we, we dive into to God's word here. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for this wonderful, amazing, almost unbelievable truth of the resurrection. Thank you that in the resurrection, we know that we, we have confidence in your power, your power over death, your power over the grave, over sin, over evil. Father, that because of the resurrection, we have hope. We have hope in our own resurrection. We have hope in our own victory over sin and death someday. Um, Father, thank you that the resurrection shows that you are redeeming your creation. You're not throwing it away. Um, Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we have the privilege of being able to open your word together. Thank you that the spirit dwells within us and guides us into truth. And we pray that we will listen to your spirit as we look at your word. We pray that you will guide us into truth. And we pray for the courage that we need to obey what you've told us. And we pray in Jesus' name and through the spirit. Amen. Amen. So to make sense of the empty tomb... And the appearance, I mean, really, to, to enter into the disciples' minds a little bit, it's, it's helpful to look at what they understood and what they thought about resurrection and what they were anticipating in the first place. I've always imagined, as I read the Gospels, that disciples were kind of dumb. Because Jesus several times said, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. And then... They go into Jerusalem. What happens? <laughs> he's handed over to the Romans. He's crucified. And then when he rises from the dead, like, what? <laughs> we never expected this to happen. Why did they have that kind of a response? Why weren't they expecting this? Is part of, part of my question. They were stunned um, when this happened. So although Jesus did speak of this, this is, they didn't understand him. And that's actually one of the things, if you look at these accounts, whenever Jesus says, I'm going to die and be rose, raised, risen from the dead, their response is, what does he mean by this? They don't understand what he means. And I think there's some reasons that they didn't understand this. Um, first, the obvious reason. You don't need to enter into the ancient world to understand this, but people generally don't rise from the dead. Usually when somebody dies, they're dead. That's, that is the normal human experience. So this isn't something that usually happens. This isn't something that, oh yeah, I heard some guy rose from the dead last week and you know, four or five weeks ago. This isn't something that happens. When people die, they're dead. And it's, it's not something that is part of their expectation at all. Secondly, and turn to the disciples' shoes here too. Remember the triumphal entry. Um, they're not expecting a crucifixion. They're expecting a crowning. We know this. Remember James and John that with their mother, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, when we, you get set up for your kingdom, can we have a throne on your right and your left? Because that's what they're thinking about when they go into Jerusalem. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the rightful king of Israel. So as they go into Jerusalem, they're expecting Jesus to be crowned as king, to be recognized as king, for them to be sitting on thrones. That's what messiahs do. That's what saviors do. That's what kings do. And that's what they're expecting. They're not expecting a crucifixion. So when the crucifixion happens, they're, they're stunned. 
This isn't what happens to Messiah, because they still didn't understand what Jesus' messianic mission was ultimately about. And so after all their hopes get dashed, they're in a state of confusion, despair, not a state of hope. And thirdly, although many Jewish people of the day did believe in the future resurrection, one of the things you'll see in the Gospels and in Acts is that there were two schools of thought on this. So you had the, the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. And the Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection. Um, and many Jews of the day believed that there would be a resurrection. But they believed there would be a resurrection at the end of time. If you, if you look at the literature, you'll never find anybody expecting a resurrection in the present, in the now. They didn't expect resurrection that way. Resurrection was something in the day of the Lord, when, in the day of Yahweh, that there's the judgment, there's the resurrection. That's what they thought about when they heard resurrection. Um, and secondly, along with that, though many people believed in the Messiah, and many people believed in the resurrection, you won't find anything in, in the Jewish literature of the day that puts those two thoughts together. Nobody really associated Messiah with resurrection. There were some people who thought of a suffering Messiah and of a victorious Messiah, but nobody was really anticipating a resurrected Messiah. So these weren't thoughts that went together. They go together for us because we've been raised with this, and we, I've been taught about the resurrection since I was three years old. But for them, these two things don't go together. So they weren't anticipating this that way either. So when Jesus spoke of being crucified and risen from the dead, I think the most natural way for the disciples to understand this is that he's talking about resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection and the end. He's going to be resurrected in the last day. They already believe that. You see Mary and Martha, they believe the same kind of thing if you look at the story of Lazarus. And that this whole thing about dying and raising three days later, it must be a parable of some sort. And that's really what I think they understood it to be. Because they get amongst each other and they're, what does he mean? But they were scared to ask him. So I think that, I mean, and to give them a little bit of credit, Jesus did speak in a lot of parables, and not all of them were easy to understand, and I think that's what they did with these statements. What does he mean by this? It's some kind of a riddle, some kind of a parable, and so as they go into Jerusalem, they're not expecting a crucifixion, even though Jesus said that's what would happen, and they're not expecting a resurrection, even though Jesus said that was what would happen, because it's not part of their worldview. It's kind of like if I said, um, I'm going to disappear for a few minutes, and then I'll be back. You, you would not expect me to actually vanish and disappear. You're, you're, you have a, have a framework for understanding me say I'm going to disappear, and you're not taking it literally. And I think that's the same thing with the disciples. It's a very different scenario, I get it. But that they're not taking it literally, that he's going to literally die and be raised three days later. That's not how they understood direct resurrection. Resurrection was something that happened in the judgment, happened at the end of time. All good Pharisees and conservative Jews of the day believed in resurrection. Sadducees didn't. We'll get to that in a little bit. And that's, that's why I think that they misunderstood that. So moving into your study notes here, um, of the sermon notes. Although Jesus had predicted his own resurrection, the disciples had not understood this. For the disciples, the resurrection was unlooked for and unexpected, but it changed absolutely everything. Again, think back to the night of Jesus' betrayal. The disciples, they scattered and ran. Peter denied even knowing him three times. And then we move into the book of Acts. Just a few weeks later, this is not that far into the future, Peter stands before the chief priests, the people who had had and orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. And they're telling him to stop preaching about the resurrection. And he says, we're going to obey God rather than man. This is the guy who ran when Jesus was was going to be arrested and crucified. And now he's standing before the people who crucified him and saying, no, 
We're going to preach about his resurrection. It doesn't matter what you do to us. This is a man who has had radical transformation. So what changed? What changed this guy from a, a guy who's fearful and denying he knows Jesus to a guy who's standing for the people who killed him and said, no, we're going to preach the truth, whatever you do to us. Well, when the person who kills Jesus tells you to do something and the person who rose from the dead after he was killed tells you to do something, you, that person who killed him is exposed as not really having that much power. His power is an illusion. If Jesus has power over life and death, the worst thing you can do is to kill him. If he comes back to life, the, the power of the chief priest is a sham. What's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? My God has power over life and death. The power of the resurrection. So the resurrection exposes earthly powers as having only an illusion of power. And if Jesus has power over life and death, who can stand against that? Secondly, the the women who went to care for Jesus' body on Sunday morning, they're given this awesome privilege. This is really an awesome responsibility and privilege of being the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. They get to be the first people who see the risen Lord. And their response, again, it's understandable, fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. These emotions seem to conflict, but I think this makes perfect sense. They're not expecting this to happen. I kind of imagine this if you've ever had goosebumps in your hair standing on end. Uh, I, I'm, I'm weird. I like to read stories, and sometimes a really good story, that will happen. But just multiply that like a million times over, and it's like, whoa, wow, he's, he's alive. He rose from the dead. I, I can't believe it. This is crazy. Um, so there, there, this fear and great joy, these things go together. They watched as Jesus was cru- crucified. Imagine, just just very short time before that, they watched Jesus be whipped be forced to carry his cross, not be able to carry the cross, be nailed to a cross, stand, uh, be on the cross in agony for several hours, and then give up his spirit and die. They watched that happen, and now he's standing in front of them alive. This is, this is not a normal kind of occurrence. Um, now on Sunday morning, an empty tomb, an encounter with the risen Lord. And then third, the third response here is the chief priest's response, and they, they respond by trying to cover it up. As Jesus had predicted, if you remember earlier in the Gospels, Jesus said, even if I rise from the dead, you still will not believe. And he was right. He, rises, he raises from the dead. They, this does not convince them to believe. I'm really curious what they told themselves because they know that the message that they're spreading is a lie. They know it's a lie. They know it's not true. Um, I'm curious what they actually believed. Maybe they did believe their own lie. I think human beings are profoundly good at believing the lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, but they portray their own lack of integrity. They're more concerned with their own agenda than they are concerned with the truth. Um, and by the way, I think along with this, maybe helps you understand their response. Um, I think there's sometimes a misconception like that the Pharisees were behind Jesus being crucified. Not really. It's more the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the, the main powers behind the, um, the, the priests and and the Sanhedrin, so they were mostly Sadducees, and Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection at all. They were the group of people that said, no, when you die, you die, and that's it. There is no resurrection. So when they're confronted with, there's a resurrection, that's completely off the radar, that's not part of their worldview, and they refuse to reconsider um, what they've already believed. They, they dig in their heels, they deny the resurrection, they don't believe in one, and they refuse to entertain the idea that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. So then, the, then we move into the response. So there's the resurrection. And I, I kind of love having the resurrection, the Great Commission, even though these are two big ideas in terms of Christian life and Christian teaching. 
Christian belief, because these two really go together. What's the response to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the response is the Great Commission, to go and tell. And the first people entrusted with proclaiming the good news of Jesus' resurrection were women. And in Jewish law, and Pastor Jay has talked about this before, this is pretty common knowledge here, um, Jewish law, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in court. I'm not saying they're not reliable witnesses in court, believe me, but this is in, the day of, in that day and age, it was kind of the belief that women were, were sort of gullible, you can't really trust what they're saying, and so you, you wouldn't rely on them being witnesses. Um, and I think if the disciples, if the disciples were in charge of who's going to be the person who sees the risen Christ first? Should it be Peter or John or James? Or maybe we should get Joseph. He was part of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. Some, some really, you know, well-respected person. But God works in ways that are different than the ways humans work. And this is really one of the really strong evidences that this is not a made-up story. Because if it was a made-up story, they would have picked somebody else. But God's ways are not our ways. And God chose to honor these, these somewhat ordinary women who had been faithful they, they, they stayed with Jesus through his crucifixion. They came to honor the body of Jesus and to, to, to care for him in the only way that they could. And God shows them tremendous um, honor, gives us some tre- tremendous privilege of being the first to see the risen Lord and the first to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. The news of Jesus' resurrection, however, does not go unopposed. So there's a great commission and then there's the, there's the opposite of the Great Commission, the Anti-Commission. The guards are commissioned to spread a false report. And really, the more you look at this false report, I want you to think about this for a little bit, the more implausible it becomes. This is really not a very good explanation as to what happened. So, so think about this. The story that they come up with is that the disciples, who just a short time before had run and scattered when Jesus was arrested, they decide to sneak, sneak to the tomb in the middle of the night, where there's guards, and the guards just happen to fall asleep, all of them. And this huge tombstone in front of the tomb, it takes several men to to move. Remember, the women were worried about figuring out how to move it. They move it, and the the, uh, guards are still asleep. They don't wake up. The whole time, they they have all these disciples moving the tomb, and then they go in, and they steal the body, and the guards are still asleep, and they can receive severe punishment for falling asleep on the job. They're still asleep. They get away, and then the guards wake up. I'm like, oh, what happened? Really? Is that really a plausible explanation for for the empty tomb? It's not. And the more you think about it, really, the sillier that that becomes. But it is an alternative to believing the truth. So there there is the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, but the, the chief priests, they come up with an alternative. You can believe this instead. And there's, there's, these, there's opposition to the truth of the gospel. The Great Commission is not a triumphalist manifesto that promises success without difficulty or opposition. It doesn't promise everybody's going to believe the truth of the gospel. But it's a command to go despite the difficulty, despite the opposition, despite the persecution, with the confidence that he who defeated death is with, with us until the, until the end. And then the disciples, like the women, they model the proper response to the resurrection of Jesus, worship. The proper response to the resurrection is worship. And again, it says in the text that they worshiped him, but some doubted. But the, the word here is not the normal word for doubting. It's, um, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's the time when Peter, it's also in Matthew, um, walks on water, 
and he looks around and he sees the wind and the waves and he, it says he doubted. And I don't think the idea is doubting the truth of something. I think the idea is, is being fearful and being hesitant and, and having a lack of confidence. That's more the idea here. So Jesus is risen from the dead. He's about to commission them to go and preach this good news that most of them are going to die for. And some of them are still a little hesitant. And I think the Great Commission is a response to that hesitation. Um, I have been given, Jesus says, all authority and all power, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. I think he's, he is addressing their fear, their lack of confidence, their doubt. Uh, the un- disciples' understanding of the world has just been turned upside down. They're worshiping Jesus, but still processing all that, what, all that happened here. Um, Jesus, the recipient of all authority on heaven and on earth, commissions them to take the message um, of the, and teaching of a crucified and risen Messiah to all nations, because his authority, not Rome's, um, is ultimate. His authority, not the chief priest's, is ultimate. Secondly, he promises to be with them. Jesus, the one who defeated death, he showed the power of Rome and the power of Jerusalem to be empty and of no consequence. He will be with them as they fulfill this daunting and intimidating task of bringing this good news to all nations. I want to talk a little bit about why the resurrection matters. And hopefully that's not a uh, new thought to you that the resurrection matters. The resurrection is not just the the central event of the Bible. It's not just the central event of Christian theology. It's really the the central event of all of human history. If if Jesus rose from the dead, this changes everything. Changes everything. It's not just doesn't change things just for the Jewish people. It doesn't change things just for us in church. This is something that is changes things for everyone in all of human history. And there's a lot that can be said, but three reasons why the, the resurrection is really the central event of human history and why it matters so much. First, the resurrection of Christ is a demonstration of God's power. It's his power over sin, his power over the grave, his power over evil. When humans fell into sin, we fell under, the pow- under its power and its consequences. We became sinners ourselves. Have you ever tried to stop sinning for a week? Uh, how'd that go for you? It, it doesn't go very well because we're sinners and we're under its power. We don't have power over sin in our own strength. So we become sinners ourselves. We're born with a a corrupted human nature without the power in ourselves to avoid sin and incur judgment. We suffer the consequences of sin in our bodies as we grow old, as we suffer and we die. Death becomes inescapable for us. We all are on our way to, to the grave. People try to escape death, but they can't. The human race is also under the sway of the evil one. And we, in ourselves, in our own power, do not have the strength to overcome and defeat Satan and his, his, um, his crew. But the resurrection demonstrates that God has put these powers to shame. Uh, Colossians, Colossians says something similar to this, that Christ has defeated sin and its consequences and that death itself will die. Because of the resurrection, we have, through Christ, power over sin. We have power over death. We have power over evil. The resurrection tells us the end of the story That God's people, God and his people will be vindicated. We will be raised to life. We will be justified. We will be victorious. The chief priest could not be rid of Jesus. The Roman soldiers could not put an end to him. Satan could not keep Jesus in the grave. Satan and all earthly powers are exposed and put to shame. The worst they could do is to kill him, but death has no power over him. The worst they can do to Jesus' followers is to kill us, but for followers of the resurrected Messiah, death has no ultimate sting. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ, and this is related to that, because of God's power demonstrated in the resurrection, we have hope. The resurrection gives us hope for our own resurrection. 
and the defeat of death, sin, and evil in our bodies. I don't know each of our experiences and what we're suffering with today, but if you're suffering with disease, if you're suffering with illness, you're suffering with pain, if you're, you're suffering with death uh, of somebody that you love, you're suffering with sin in your life that seems to just have power over you, the resurrection is a declaration that God is more powerful than those things, and those things will be defeated, and they have an end. The resurrection gives us hope. It gives us hope with our battle against sin. It gives us hope in our battle against the evil one. It gives us hope in our battle against death and disease and our struggles and any, anything that, that, that we're suffering with today. The resurrection gives us hope that these things will be defeated. So Jesus' resurrection is a preview of our own resurrection. God will not leave our bodies in the grave, but will raise us from the dead on the last day um, with glorified bodies on a new earth. So our suffering... Although it's, it's real now, it has an expiration date. Death will be defeated. Death will die. And thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is the beginning. Um, Paul calls it the first fruits of God's redemption and reconciliation of creation to himself. The resurrection is an affirmation of the goodness of creation. So you remember in Genesis 1 and 2 that God says that it is very good. He creates the universe, and he calls it good, but sin has corrupted it. Sin has brought death and disease, but the resurrection is that God intends to redeem creation, not to destroy it. Um, remember, Jesus could have just been raised spiritually. A lot, of, a lot of false teachers teach that, that Jesus wasn't, his body wasn't raised, it was a spiritual resurrection, but it's most emphatically what did not happen. Jesus' body was raised from the dead. Jesus' body was raised. He was raised physically. And this is an affirmation that God created human beings and he's not done with them. That Jesus' human body was raised from the dead. It's glorified. It's, it's no longer subject to death corruption. Um, as 1 Corinthians tells us, it's an incorruptible, glorified body. So the resurrection shows us that God is not giving up on his creation. He's going to redeem it, restore it, and renew it. Our hope, and I hope you haven't been taught this, but I, I feel like this is sometimes a Christian belief that's, that's not correct. Our hope is not that someday we'll get to sit on harps, I mean sit on harps, sit on clouds and play harps and have a little halo and a little songbook and have this disembodied spiritual state up in, up in the sky. That's not the Christian hope. That's not the Christian hope at all. The, the Christian hope is that we will be raised from the dead, that our physical bodies will be raised from the dead, will be given a glorified body on a new earth without sickness, without disease, without pain, without death. And the resurrection is a declaration that Satan does not win and that Satan does not have the final say. The earth and all that is in it is the Lord's and God will be victorious and redeem what is his. The resurrection declares that to be true. So moving into the, the responding to the resurrection, I think there's three primary responses and they all flow together. The second one flows from the first, the third flows from the, the second. So the first and primary response to the resurrection is the response of the women and the response of the disciples. They see the resurrected Christ and what do they do? They worship him. I, I love that we are singing about the resurrection um, leading into to the, to this text this morning. The resurrection showed that Jesus was who he said he was. He is and remains Emmanuel. Remember at the beginning of the book when Jesus was born, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And the last verse of the, of the book of Matthew, um, he will be with us even to the end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, God in the flesh. He defeated death. He put evil to, sh to shame. God has exalted him to the highest place, given him all authority in heaven and earth. He's owed all of our worship, all of our praise, and all of our service. And so flowing out of that, the second response is if, God, if Jesus deserves our worship, 
if Jesus is exalted to the highest place, then Jesus is Lord, and he must be obeyed. In the Great Commission, Jesus told his disciples to teach others to obey all that I commanded you. Worshiping the risen Savior means obedience. One of the things, by the way, and I think these two thoughts are connected, that Jesus commanded was to love your enemies. And that might be one of the most difficult commandments that Jesus has given. But the Great Commission and the resurrection give us power to love our enemies, doesn't it? If, if we don't have to fear anyone because Jesus has overcome death, then who, who can oppose us? Who can oppose us? It gives us the power to go to our enemies and invite them to salvation. It gives us the power to love our enemies and say, no, we want you to be part of God's family. We want you as a part of the kingdom. And preaching the good news to our neighbors is a response to Jesus' resurrection. It's also a response to loving our enemies and the commands that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is Lord. Worshiping the risen Savior means that he is our Lord. He is our chief. Not the chief priest in Jerusalem for the disciples. Not Caesar in Rome. Not any other political power. Um, not you. Not me. He is Lord. and He must be obeyed. And then the third response. So if Jesus must be obeyed, what has he told us to do? Well, he tells us in this text, go and make disciples. So the resurrection is not a message for us only. It's a message for all people and all nations. Remember that these people are, the, the, the 11 disciples here, they're all Jewish. And they probably lived most or all of their lives in Palestine, in Israel. And now they're being told to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for the whole world. Go and make disciples of all nations. God has defeated death. New life in Christ is available. And he is with us through his spirit. Disciple making as we're commanded here, is not optional. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he holds all authority and all power and has commanded us to go into all nations, we don't get to say no. Say no to the one who rose from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God. Um, the underlying logic of the Great Commission, why Jesus commanded it in the first place, is that this message of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, is a message for the world. It's not just for Israel, it's not just for Americans, it's not just for people who grew up in the church, it's a message for the whole world. The Great Commission must drive what we do as a church, and I, I really believe it does. It's why day camp is so important. Why, why do we do day camp? Be, because of the Great Commission. We've been ta- told to teach this good news. Um, it's why we send missionaries to Kenya, to Russia, to Slovenia, and to other parts of the world, because of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is why some of us are involved in English as a second language, or um, to a Muslim ministry in, in university place. The Great Commission is why we preach sermons from God's Word, why we offer adult classes, why we have youth group, why we have community groups, why some of us volunteer in nursing homes, because although being a disciple involves becoming a disciple, it does not end with accepting Christ as Lord. It's a lifelong process of following Jesus and being shaped into his likeness. So my challenge to you is to ask yourself, how are you taking part in fulfilling the Great Commission? Fulfilling the Great Commission is the work of all of us. And we have different parts to play. Some of us go, not all of us do. Some of us send, some of us offer support. Some of us teach children. Some of us raise our children the best we can to love, serve, and honor Christ. Some of us greet people at the door of the church building, welcoming them in and showing Christ to all who enter. But how are we taking part in this great commission. The command to go to all nations is a big one. It's a daunting one. This isn't something that when the disciples heard it, thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is scary. This is not an easy thing. But because the one who defeated sin and evil and overcame the grave is with us, there is no one and nothing that we have to be afraid of. And I want to read, um, and Paul is thinking of the resurrection here, to close us, I'm going to read from Romans 8. 
verses 31 to 39. You can turn there if you like, but you don't, don't have to. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Father, thank you that you will not leave our bodies in the grave when our time comes, but that you will raise us. Thank you that you are redeeming creation. You didn't destroy it. Father, we are sinners. We don't, deserve, we don't deserve the resurrection in our own power. We don't deserve the resurrection in our own goodness, in our own merits. It's purely a gift that you gave us Jesus who died for our sin. You raised him from the dead. And that like you raised him from the dead, you will raise us. Father, we, we glory in this gift. Father, as you've commanded us to go and, and teach and make disciples of all nations, Father, we, we pray for your power. We pray for your... Um, for, for a courage that we don't have in ourselves to be able to speak the truth, even when there is opposition. Um, Father, help us to be faithful. And thank you for giving us your spirit that strengthens us, that reminds us of the truth of, the, of your word, um, and, he's, and that Jesus Christ, through the spirit, is with us even to the end of the age. Father, we pray in the name of the risen Savior, in the name of Jesus. Amen.